song caught me off guard. I've heard a song a million times, listened to him rehearse this morning, and then uh, let it penetrate my heart, and now I'm not in a good condition to start right off the bat, uh, unless you enjoy my sniffling. <laughs> well, we're starting a new series, and it's a series we've done once before, but it's not the same message at all, but it's called Life in a Word. And it centers around the thought that there are seasons in our life where one word can describe us and what our life is like, sometimes our entire life. Uh, We can look back, given that perspective that God gives sometimes, and realize one word describes our entire journey. So that's the premise of this series. And uh, we start today with the word wanted. Now... Wanted, of course, can, uh, can have a lot of different meanings. Uh, for example, wanted might be like this. <laughs> it's kind of the way we don't want to be wanted, or like this. Not the way you want to be wanted. Um, or perhaps like this. I'm still a Redskins fan, but I am a Patriots fan, too. And I did say it, greatest of all time, Tom Brady. (laughs) Uh, But we're not talking about wanted in that regard, and I'm sure you knew that. So uh, I wanted to put together a little bit of a definition to get you clear about what kind of wanted we really are looking at today. So here we go. Wanted. What I mean by it is acceptance. Admittance, approval, affirmation, admiration, affiliation, the idea that you're, you're part, to be respected, to be liked, to be loved, to belong. That's what we mean by wanted. And it's an interesting thing that there is something inside of every human being. You can go at any time in history. You can go to any culture. It doesn't matter where you find human beings. Every human being wants to be wanted. And we want to be wanted for ourselves. We want to be wanted in spite of ourselves, truth be known. Where does this come from? I mean, mean, where does this drive come from? And if you want to know just how intense this drive to be wanted is, all you have to do is look at what happens when we don't experience being wanted. When we experience, for example, being rejected or given the message that we don't belong, when we're ignored, when we're excluded, when we're thrown out, when we're thrown away, when we're abandoned. Just think of the extraordinary pain that any of those experiences brings to us. How do you explain that? I mean, why, why are we so fine-tuned inwardly to this longing to be wanted, to be accepted, to belong? And why can you hurt a human being so intensely, deeply by simply rejecting them or giving signals that they don't really matter? I mean, it's, it's impossible, folks. It's impossible to explain this unless you start with where the Bible starts, that God made us in his own image. He created us with the capacities to experience life in the way that he himself does. It's the greatest, most loving gift he could give. And, and we're fine-tuned beings that are ever 
in search of love. We never get enough love. We never get enough affirmation. We never get enough of that sense of someone letting us know we belong, we matter, we're wanted. It's a wonderful feeling. Now, what do we do when we're not wanted? Because you know and I know, you can't live very long in this world of ours before someone somewhere tags us as being unwanted. And when you feel that pain, when you feel that pain of rejection, sometimes it can really turn you inside out. In fact, truth be told, some of us are sitting right in this room today. We experience rejection early in our life, and we have never, ever gotten over it. We are still driven by that fear of rejection. We are still prisoners to that fear of rejection. We are, some of us, approval addicts. We'll do almost anything to get someone's approval. And we are in great pain if we even suspect that people don't approve of us. We were branded unwanted early in life somewhere. It might have been purely accidental, like the life of a guy named Jai Jung. He tells a story about himself, and I'll show you a picture of him in a minute. He says that when he was in first grade, the teacher had a wonderful idea, <laughs> so it seemed. She had 40 kids in her class, and she said, okay, what we're going to do today, kids, is each of you are going to come, and, and then you just say the name of a fellow student and find one nice thing to say about them. And after you come forward, say the name of a student, say one nice thing about them, you can go and get a, a prize. And she had a whole stack of prizes waiting for the kids. 40 kids in the class. Seems safe enough. <laughs> one after another they went. One after another they went. They're down to 35. They're down to 36. They're down to 37. Picture you, your three kids left standing. Jai Jang was one of these kids. He burst out in tears for the fear that no one would ever call his name and no one had anything nice to say about him. He freaks out crying. The teacher freaks out and says, oh, okay, okay, kids, so you three, just go get, your, go get your gift, go get your prize. And then she says to them, and if you behave yourself well this year, maybe people will like you better next year. He said at age six, he realized looking back on his life as a 30-year-old man who was stuck in a management position that although it was good, it was not who he wanted to be. He always dreamt of being an entrepreneur. And he realized at that moment that what happened to him at age six made him so terrified of the feeling of rejection, failure, rejection sometimes go hand in hand, that he was imprisoned at a job that he didn't want to do. So his wife encouraged him, go for it. You know, break out. Be the entrepreneur that you always want to be. And so he, he realizes, I'm imprisoned by rejection, the fear of rejection. How do I deal with this? So he goes and he does what everybody does. He Googles it. What do you do about the fear of rejection? And he comes across this site and this guy writes his site, says, okay, here's what you do for the fear of rejection. Deliberately for 30 days, find a way to be rejected every single day. Do something to be rejected for 30 days. At the end of 30 days, you won't fear rejection ever again. Well, Jai Jiang decides, I'm not going to do it for 30 days. I'm going to do it for 100 days. And he did. He did. And, and, and he writes about this journey. So I think if we have a picture or something good is going to happen on that screen, there it is. <laughs> the art of rejection. 100 days of rejection therapy overcoming the fear of failure. And so, some of the things that he did, we're going to show you on a clip. So, 
let me just. I said, you know what, I'm gonna do this, and I'll film myself getting rejected 100 days. And I came up with my own rejection ideas, and I'll make a video blog out of it. And so here's what I did. This is what the blog looked like. Um, day one, <laughs> borrow $100 from, from stranger. So this is where I went to where I was working. I, uh, I came downstairs and saw this big guy sitting behind the desk. You know, he, he looked like a security guard. So I just approached him. And I was just going, I was just walking, and that was the longest walk in my life. I just hair at the back of my neck standing up. I was sweating, and my heart was pounding. And I got there and said, hey, um, sir, can I borrow $100 from you? <laughs> and he looked up, he's like, no. <laughs> Why? And I just said, I said, no, I'm sorry. Then I turned around and just ran. <laughs> I felt so embarrassed. But because I filmed myself, so that night I was watching myself getting rejected, I just saw how scared I was. I looked like this kid in Sixth Sense. I saw dead people. <laughs> but then I saw this guy, he, you know, he, he wasn't that menacing. He was a chubby, lovable guy, you know. And, uh, and he even asked me why. In fact, he invited me to explain myself. And I could have said many things. I could have explained, I could have negotiated. I, I didn't do any of that. All I did was run. I felt, wow, this is like a microcosm of my life. Every time I feel the slightest rejection, I was just run as fast as I could. And you know what? The next day, no matter what happens, I'm not going to run. I'll stay engaged. Day two, request a burger refill. This is where I finished, uh, went to a burger joint, I finished lunch, and I went to the cashier and said, hey, can I get a burger refill? <laughs> and he was all confused. I was like, what's a burger refill? <laughs> I said, well, just like a drink refill, but what's a burger? <laughs> and he said, sorry, we don't do a burger refill, man. <laughs> so he does it, and by the way, if you want to go online, you can see all of his videos and all the rejections and things. And here's a few others that I thought were really funny ones. Um, I'm not sure what screen it'll appear on, but it will appear. There it is. Uh, more of 100 Days of Rejection. He goes to um, a Krispy Kreme place and asks for five donuts connected like the Olympic symbol with the Olympic colors. And I'm going to just ask you, which ones do you think, you think he got rejected or accepted? He actually got that one. He actually got, she made him. She was an amazing lady. Uh, he goes to a, a, a stranger's house and asks to play soccer in his backyard. Rejected or accepted? He did. The guy, the stranger, I wouldn't have let him in my backyard. Uh, crazy people. Give a weather forecast uh, on live TV. What do you think? He was rejected. Yeah, they, they didn't go for that. Slide down the fire pole at the fire station. He actually was rejected for that one. <laughs> Sit on Lincoln's lap at the memorial. He was rejected. Yeah, you, you can't sit on Lincoln's lap. <laughs> so the pain of rejection was so powerful and had so much control over him. He was willing to go 100 days to deliberately try to experience rejection in the hope that he would desensitize himself to the pain of rejection. That's one way, that's one way we can handle this longing we have for being wanted, but living in a world where quite frequently we get the message we're unwanted. Now, there's an interesting quote by a guy 
uh, don't have his name right on the tip of my tongue. Matthew Lieberman, professor, PhD, UCL, uh, UCLA psychology department. And uh, he says this about the brain scan of rejection, looking at the brain scan side by side without knowing which was an analysis of physical pain and which was an analysis of social pain, you wouldn't have been able to tell. His point was that when we experience rejection, it's just the same on a brain scan as physical pain. It's real, real pain. Now, of course, I didn't have to tell you that because, you know, we all know that old thing, sticks and don't, stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And we all know words hurt a whole lot more and the pain lasts a lot longer than sticks or stones. Having said that, I don't want to be hit with sticks or stones as well. So we're going to look at a man in a minute who is uh, the epitome of what the society of his day would have considered the lowest, most disgusting uh, individual you could imagine. He, he was the, the ultimate reject. Anyone that would have known him, anyone that would have, would have passed by him, would have had nothing but loathing for him. He lived with a tag, as it were, on himself, unwanted. Everywhere he went, it was reinforced. You're unwanted. You're disgusting. On the side of your row, if you don't mind looking, if you're on this side of the row, as I'm looking out, it's my left, it'll be your right. There's an envelope. Kind of grab it quickly and take the tags out. And there's a sticker just for you that I want you to put it on and wear it. And what that sticker will say is what the man in our text felt every single day of his life, probably every second of his life. The sticker, will somebody say it out loud now that you've had time to get one? Unwanted. Unwanted. Now as these stickers go around, and please do keep it on, I want you, I want you to try to feel, and some of you say, Randy, I don't have to try, man. I've been wearing that sticker all my life. But I want you to try to enter into what it feels like to be categorically unwanted by pretty much anyone, anywhere, regardless of where you go. Once again, some of you, I can, I can hear your mind. You're saying, Randy, I, I live that, man. I've been living that all my life. I never feel like I belong. I always feel like I'm on the outside looking in. I never, I never feel like I can connect. I, I, I always feel like I'm going to be judged or found deficient. Well, then, this message is a particular time that the Lord who is present wants to do some, some healing work in your heart, some correcting, correcting work in your mind. Well, let's go to our text today. It'll be page 1101 on those Bibles that are near you on the chair, and it's Matthew's Gospel. It's the start of Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry, the first year. And uh, you're looking at Matthew 9. We're just going to look at a few verses, chapter 9 through 13. Now, I'm going to read you the text, and I'm going to go back and open it up for you because there's so much you will miss if you're not aware of some historical realities of the day in which this occurred. Scripture has to be taken in its historical context in order to get an appropriate interpretation, and without an appropriate interpretation, we can't get an appropriate application uh, for our lives today. 
So here we go. It starts in verse 9. As Jesus went from there, he saw a man named, you tell me, Matthew, Matthew, sitting at the tax booth. Follow me, he said to him. And he got up and followed him. As Jesus was having a meal in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees, these were the religious leaders of Jesus' day, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher, that's your, why does your rabbi, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said, those who are healthy don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. Go and learn what this saying means. I want mercy and not sacrifice. That is a quote from the Old Testament book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6. For I did not come to call the righteous, but who? Sinners. Sinners. And I'll unpack all this for you. Now, we're reading it with a 21st century mind, and it's easy to not really get what's going on. This is, this is really big. So bear with me. I'm going I'm to share some things that I shared in a message a few weeks back. I've shared this off and on through the years, but, but let me, let me kind of unpack some things that will make this so much more meaningful to you. So here's this guy named Matthew. He is a tax collector. That doesn't mean a whole lot to us today, but here's what it meant then. This meant that when the Romans came and conquered the lands of Israel, they would appoint people that knew the language to collect taxes for them. If you were a Jew and you agreed to be a tax collector for the Romans, you were considered to be not just a traitor to your nation, but a traitor to the temple of God and a traitor to God himself. You were looked upon as the scum of the earth. Let let, let me try to give you something to go by. It would be like a Jew in Nazi Germany leading his fellow Jews into the gas chambers so that he himself would be allowed to live a little longer. It... Matthew was looked upon as the worst of the worst. He was considered by the religious leaders of his day to be beyond redemption. No hope for a guy that would go this low. No hope for this kind of evil, this kind of greed, this kind of sin, this kind of betrayal. But it wasn't just the religious leaders. Let me tell you something. Everyone, every Jew would have felt this way about Matthew. He lived with an unwanted sticker on his chest every single day of his life. Now let me add something. Jesus' own disciples would have, before they met Jesus, they would have hated Matthew. They would have rejected Matthew. This story could have went very differently. Amongst Jesus' disciples were two guys, two brothers, James and John. Their nickname, their street name was the Sons of Thunder. How do you suppose you get a name like that? <laughs> this story would have been very different had Jesus not entered into their life. Their attitude toward Matthew would have probably been to rough Matthew up pretty good. But it all changes. Now, let me, let, me, let me peel it back yet another layer. So Jesus comes up to this stranger, Matthew, this tax collector, this guy that's hated, this, this reject by society, this enemy of God and man. Jesus comes up to him and he says, follow me. And we read it and we're like, okay, we get it. He wants him to follow him. But you have to know the context. Jesus was considered 
a teacher, a rabbi, an elite rabbi, a rabbi with something called smicha. What, what that means was this. With his, uh, most of the rabbis, they just quoted other rabbis. They didn't dare give their own interpretations of Scripture, but Jesus did. It said he spoke with authority. He spoke with smicha. He gave original interpretations. He was looked upon as an elite teacher, a very high rabbi. Plus, he had power to bring miracles to pass on earth. Now... In those days, in Jesus' days, you had to be a very promising student of Judaism before any rabbi, much less a rabbi with smicha, would come and ask you to follow them. Only the most promising students of Judaism, only the ones that were the best and the brightest and the most committed would a rabbi, particularly an elite rabbi, come and say, follow me, become one of my taladim, one of my disciples is what it meant and what that meant was this if you agreed to follow your teacher your rabbi if you agreed to become a taladim a disciple it meant that you wanted more than anything else in life to become just like your teacher and that's what it meant to come follow me so Jesus is breaking all the rules Matthew far from being the best and the brightest the most promising student of Judaism he is an utter reject he is a disgusting menace to society he is a traitor to God and man and Jesus says you're the guy that I want on my team will you come Matthew will you leave it all behind notice Jesus doesn't say one word to him about his sin Matthew, you must realize what a great sinner you are. You must realize what a terrible human being you are. Matthew, you must know that you are beyond hope. And only a, a loving God could sweep in and, and save some wretch like you. It doesn't say any of that, does he? How come we do? How come we put all this kind of nonsense in religious books that we read? Oh, you must know that you're a sinner. You must know that you're a sinner. Can I ask you a question? I'm, I'm just be frank with you. Let's just kind of relax for a minute. Has there ever been a time in your life when you didn't know you were a sinner? I have never had a time in my life. I'm serious. Was there ever a time that you didn't know? How many would say, I've always kind of known I was a sinner, Randy? Can I see your hands? Yeah. But in our Christian books and literature... We feel like we need to tell people again and again, oh, you must realize that you're a sinner. I'm going to tell you something. There's not a human being alive that doesn't know we're far from perfect. So here's Jesus taking this model of calling the best and the brightest, but he's calling the worst. And he's calling him to become just like himself. Jesus is saying to Matthew, because this is what it meant when a, when a rabbi would call someone to follow him. It meant that I believe you can become just like me. You can take my yoke upon you and you can take my form of teaching and pass it on to multitudes of others. I think you can be an elite follower. That's what he was saying to the worst of the worst. Now, now, fast forward. Jesus dies a sacrificial death for our sins to prove that we can trust him, that he loves us sacrificially, that he's good all the time. He rises from the grave. And when he rises from the grave, the first thing that he tells his disciples in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, he says, I want you guys to do something different. I want you to go into all the world now. Essentially, find all the Matthews everywhere. Go into all the world and make taladim, make disciples of all. 
What was he saying? He was saying that because when a human being returns to their creator, Christ, in trust, Jesus will provide the power to help us grow and be transformed to be just like himself. There is no human being that if they return to Christ, their creator, in trust, there is no human being who cannot be fully transformed to the very image of the Son of God. In fact, Romans 8.29 promises that God is absolutely going to do that for everyone that puts their trust in Christ. Someday we will be totally transformed to his image. And Jesus is trying to show that what the teachers, the religious leaders were modeling them was totally wrong, that that wasn't the way God saw people, that wasn't the way God felt about people at all. So all that's going on. Then the next scene is kind of a cool one. The next scene switches quickly, and Jesus is at Matthew's house. And Matthew is having like a Super Bowl party, and he's got, he's got all of his sinful buddies there and, and, and all of his tax-gathering buddies. Notice what happens. When we are rejected in one circle of life, we will do our darndest to find a circle somewhere where we fit in and it might be a bad circle and we might have to do bad things to fit into that circle but we'll do them some of you know it some of you, some of you can think back your past and you're very uncomfortable to do so some of the things you've done some of the ways you've cheaply given yourself your soul away at times just to feel wanted just to belong somewhere it's who we are. We're not sufficient of ourselves. We need to know that we're loved and wanted by God all the time, and we desperately need to know that there's a community of people somewhere that really want us, really accept us. So Matthew's got his little clan. He's got his little buddies, his little group, his sinful buddies. At least he finds some acceptance there, and Jesus is right there with him. Now, we read that, and we're like, okay, well, Jesus had to eat somewhere, so he ate with Matthew. Why not? Matthew's his follower now. Matthew's his Taladim. Matthew's his disciple. Of course, he's going to eat his house, but you don't, you don't know. You see, until we know the context, listen, for a Jew to eat with somebody in Jesus' day, it meant that you are fully identifying with that person. You're saying, this, this is my good buddy. This is my friend. I fully identify with him. My arms around him. I want everybody to know Matthew is my man. I, I fully Jews would not even go under the same roof with a, a person like Matthew. They wouldn't get near him. If he was walking in a crowd, they would try to avoid brushing against him for fear that they would be contaminated, ritually contaminated. For Jesus to eat a meal with this guy was shocking. Why? Because the religious leaders of Jesus' day had given such a distorted picture of God. They gave this picture that God looked at people like Matthew as individuals that were just one inch away from destruction. That God was angry at them. That his wrath was about to burst on them. And that all they could look forward to was certain condemnation, no hope. And Jesus, who is God is trying to show that's not the way God ever feels about a human being. Not ever. A human being is certainly capable of becoming fully evil and incorrigible and resisting God's goodness and love and mercy until the last breath of their life. That is absolutely true. There's no denying that. But God still loves them even as they destroy themselves unnecessarily. 
And so Jesus is, is untangling the mess that the religious leaders had made in that day. And then the third thing you see is that he gives a whole different picture of sin. You know, the, the, these religious leaders, they, they saw, thought of sin in very legal terms. You break God's laws. And when you break God's laws, he's going to punish you, man. He's going to come down on you sooner or later. He's going to punish you. What does Jesus say? He says, you know, it's only sick people that need a doctor. It's not, not the healthy. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous. And he was being a little sarcastic. He knew those religious leaders thought they were righteous. And as long as they thought they had no need of God's mercy, they would stay self-condemned. They were wrongly depicting God. And Jesus is saying, I, I didn't come to call guys like you. You're, oh, you got it all together. No, I, I came to call sinners. People that were authentically honest enough with themselves and with God to say, man, I don't have it together. I am broken. I, I need God. I don't know who I am. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know how to live. I don't know the meaning of life. I don't know where life is going. I cannot keep myself alive. The evidence that we are infected uh, kind of like a disease, a spiritual disease by sin, is that we're all dying physically. These Pharisees, these religious leaders, should have known that they were just as infected by sin as the individuals they condemned because they also were dying. They couldn't keep themselves alive. Remember, said in the Garden of Eden, the day that you eat thereof, you will die. Sin kills us. Jesus, as a physician, when you go to your doctor, I said this before, you go to your doctor, it doesn't matter what condition you're in. You know, you might have been smoking like a chimney. You know, you might have been drinking like a fish. You might have been eating like a garbage disposal. You go into that doctor, you're so unhealthy, you can't put one foot in front of another. But that doctor doesn't condemn you, right? That doctor tries to fix you. That's the way God looks at us. So Jesus says all these things. It's, it's a power-packed encounter. And so all these dynamics are going on behind that passage of Scripture. So what does this mean, practically speaking, for us? I believe God wants to urge us, first of all, to just to detach. And this is going to be a lifelong project for some of us. To detach from the faulty, uncertain acceptance of people. You can't trust the acceptance of people. You must not allow yourself to be a prisoner to the acceptance and approval of people. It's faulty at best. Hey, man, there was a time in human history about seven, 800 years ago, if you could ride a horse really well and shoot an arrow while you were on the horse, you were considered really important. You know, you, you were very, very valuable. Try putting that on your resume now. <laughs> Vice versa. Let me, let me switch it again. Maybe you're, you've got a lot of college degrees. Maybe you've got a, maybe you've got a doctorate. So I'm going to take you now, and I'm going to put you in a primitive, ancient primitive Amazonian tribe where the only thing they know is how to survive. And there you are with your doctorate degree. They're going to laugh at you because you can't do things that their little children know how to do to survive. You see, we are arbitrary about how we put worth on one another. It's always been arbitrary. It's arbitrary from culture to culture, from age to age. And so why? We must detach from the faulty, uncertain acceptance of people. And Jesus goes out of his way to try to help us to do that. He even says shocking things at times. Listen to this. Luke 6, 26, he says, What blessings await you when people 
What? That's not the way we like it. We want people to like us. What, what blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you? I want to be included, not excluded. And mock you. I hate being mocked. And curse you. I don't like profanity against me. And as evil because, because, here's the, here's the key. Because you what? Follow the Son of Man. That's, that's Jesus once again using Daniel 7 code language to tell the people of that day. And they would have known it that I am the Messiah. I am the one. So Jesus is saying, listen, when people say terrible things about you because you're my follower, he's saying, great blessings await you. He goes on. When that happens, be what? Mind you, be happy when people curse you, mock you, say all manner of evil against you because of Jesus. Be happy. Yes, leap for joy, or at least give a little hop for joy. For, For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember... Their ancestors treated the ancient prophets the same way. The Jews had a history of always distreat or, or, or treating very badly uh, those that were faithful to God. It goes on. What sorrows await you who, excuse me, what sorrows await you who are praised by the crowds for their ancestors also praised the false prophets. Jesus is saying, if everybody likes you, if everybody loves you, if everybody's speaking well of you, don't, that's not necessarily a good thing. It might just mean that you stand for nothing. It might just mean that you're white noise. You just blend in. You just go along to get along. And it might mean that you're not fully human and fully alive, that there's no substance. You're, you're a hollow human being is what Jesus is saying. Listen to these words of Jesus again in John chapter 5. He says, he's talking to a group of individuals that would not put their trust in him. He says, that's why it's hard to see. That's why it is hard to see how true faith or true trust is even possible for you. He was saying to a group of people. Why? Why is it so hard to to think that it would even be possible for them to come to trust in Jesus? You are consumed by the what? Approval. Approval of other men. Let's be honest with ourselves. I know this in a group this size. I know this. This is your opportunity. There's some of you that all your life, you've lived to try to gain the approval of anyone that you're around. You've lost just about all authenticity. You've maybe lost all but a smidgen of your soul because you so desperately need approval. Loving God is here today saying, I want to help you detach from that. I want to help you come alive. You are consumed by the approval of other men, longing to look good in their eyes, and yet you disregard the approval of the one true God. God's approval means more than than the disapproval of all the earth, if you want to look at it like that. He goes on, to say this in John 12, he says, for they, they love the approval of men more than the approval of God. And I've met lots of people like that. I've met lots of people. They really are on the edge of wanting to turn to Jesus, put their trust in him and follow him fully, freely, forever. But they are so afraid about what some relative or some work associate or some old buddy or some old girlfriend are going to think of them or some old college person. They're so afraid that they either don't follow Jesus or they hide 
they hide their identity as a follower of Jesus when they're around certain people. Do you do that? You that are followers of Jesus? Do you have anyone that when you get around them, you want their approval so much that you, you hide your loyalty and allegiance to Jesus? I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just provoking thought. That's all. So lesson from Matthew's experience with Jesus and the rejection by others and Jesus' acceptance of this man who was branded as the worst of the worst, detached from the faulty, uncertain acceptance of people. On the other hand, God is telling us this morning to depend. We've got to learn to depend on the perfect, certain acceptance of God. You can, it doesn't matter who you and I are, it doesn't matter what we've done, it doesn't matter where we've come from, it doesn't matter how many bridges we've burned, it doesn't matter how much we have messed up, it doesn't matter how messed up we are, you can absolutely depend on the acceptance of God. Now, the acceptance of God will do you and I no good unless we accept him in return. And when I say accept him in return, I mean give him what is his due, which is we put our trust in Christ and we follow him fully and we follow him freely because we really trust him and we follow him forever. God's acceptance is ours, but it won't help us any until we respond to it with trust a trust that really follows. So God wants us to learn to depend on the perfect, certain acceptance that comes only from him. Here's a few verses that, that tell us the way God sees us. In the book of Galatians, Paul writing to Christ followers living in Galatia, he says, all of you are God's children. God's children. Because of your faith in Christ, your trust in Christ, that's what makes one a child of God. We are not children of God just by physical birth, but it is when we have a spiritual birth, when we return to Christ our creator in trust, we are then born into the family of God. Trust, faith in Christ Jesus or trust in Christ Jesus is what makes each of you equal with each other, whether you are a Jew or a Greek, a slave or free person, a man or a woman. We're, we're all one. We're all equal in Christ. We're all equally accepted, loved by God once we put our trust in Christ. Here's another one from the book of 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul writing to Christ's followers living in Corinth, he says, anyone who belongs, belongs. To who? Christ. To Christ. And if you have any doubt how we, how we can belong to Christ, it is simply when we make the decision to put our trust in him, and because we trust him, we're going to follow him fully. Whatever he says stop doing, we're going to stop doing. Whatever he says start doing, we're going to start doing. We're going to follow him fully. We trust him more than we trust ourselves, and we're going to follow him freely because he's convinced us that he knows us best, loves us more than we love ourselves, and proved it by dying sacrificially on the cross for us. So we're going to follow him freely, and then we're going to follow him forever because he changes not. And through all eternity, we'll learn his ways and grow, and the universe will be a beautiful place because of it. Anyone who belongs to Christ is a new person. The past is what? But it's not forgotten in your mind or mine. This is, this is really urging us. It's saying for, uh, for God's perspective, he forgets our past, but we have to work at forgetting our past. The past is forgotten, and everything is new. Another one from 1 John, the way God sees us. Consider the kind of extravagant love the Father has lavished on us. He calls us children of God. It's true. We are his beloved children. 
And in the same way the world didn't recognize him, the world didn't recognize Jesus, didn't accept him, the world does not recognize us either. You know, I got thinking about this this week. There is no one that will ever experience the level, the degree of rejection (laughs) that God does. You ever think about that? He creates this beautiful, almighty, super gifted angel, gives him a lot of authority, and the angel rebels against him. The angel not only rebels against him, but one-third of the other angels that God created, they all turn against him. So God goes and he creates human beings, and human beings, the first time they're tempted, they turn against him. And then he creates a nation, Israel, and no sooner do they get to the bottom of the foot of Mount Sinai after being delivered from Egypt, they start worshiping a golden calf that they made. And then you can look all through the history of Israel. They were constantly rejecting God's love again and again and again. And then God shows up in person in Jesus, and he has to fight the religious leaders of his day to the point that they get so relentless in their pursuit of humiliating him, they see to it that he's falsely charged and nailed to a cross by the Romans. You talk about rejection when he was hanging on the cross. They mocked him. They said, oh, you're the savior of the world. Let's see you get off that cross, Mr. Savior. And he was rejected. And you know and I know that 7 billion people alive on this planet today, the vast majority of people still reject him, though he lavishes human beings with his kindness in some form or another every single day. So when we feel rejected... We're in good company because God himself is the most rejected. And anytime you start to feel like, oh, I'm rejected because I deserve it, I did this, that, not to say that we don't do some things that we deserve some rejection, but God doesn't deserve rejection, and yet he is still rejected. If Jesus, the most perfect individual that the planet has ever seen, was rejected, is it any surprise that you and I are going to be rejected by someone somewhere? You've got to kind of just factor that in. So let me close with a story about a lady named Gloria. Tom Rainer, a Christian writer, tells a story about this lady, Gloria. Gloria lived a rough, tough life. Lots of drugs, lots of rough relationships, lots of rough living. And Gloria finally reached a stage where it just hurt so stinking bad to be her that she decided, I have nothing to live for. I hate my life. I hate myself. And she decides she's going to commit suicide. She's got a bunch of drugs saved up just for that purpose. She comes home. She just kind of arbitrarily turns her TV on, as Americans do. And she's preparing to end her life. On the TV screen is a Billy Graham crusade. Now, some of you are so young, you don't even know who Billy Graham is. Be honest. If you don't know who Billy Graham is, put your hand up. Okay, okay, phew. I'll tell you later on. He... (laughs) He's this guy that used to preach a lot about Jesus in, with people in stadiums and stuff like that. And he used to be on TV a lot. And probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, have turned to Jesus because of his preaching. Anyway, she turns on the TV and Billy Graham crusade. He's talking about Jesus to people. And at the bottom of the screen, as Billy Graham crusades will do, they have a phone number to call. If you're in trouble, if you have a need, you could call. So she sees the number and she feels like, what do I have to lose? So she calls the number. And the people say, you know, he, she tells how she's getting ready to end her life and like that. And they say, okay, this is serious. You need help. We want to help you. They connect her immediately with a church. A week later, she shows up at the church. This is cool. She goes up to the pastor and introduces herself. I'm Gloria. 
Billy Graham sent me here. <laughs> and she starts becoming a part of this gathering of Christ followers at this church. And her life changes. I, I just want to share her words with you. Billy Graham saved me from killing myself. But my church My church showed me how to be saved from my sins. The love of the people was incredible. I never knew someone as dirty as me could ever receive love again. The people accepted me just as I was. I have seen Jesus. He is in the faces, the faces of these people who love me. That sticker, that sticker, unwanted. Some of you have been wearing that sticker before I ever gave it to you. You can't shake it. You try to push it out of your head, but it keeps coming back. Do you now know that just like Matthew, who was unwanted, and maybe you have been unwanted by some people and some circumstances, do you now know that the most important the most kind, the most gentle, the most loving, the most powerful person, the most intelligent person in the universe, the person that knows you best, that he wants you. And he will always want you. And you will always be wanted. Will you take the pen? There should be a pen in front of you. And if you believe this message, and if you intend to live the rest of your days reminding yourself anytime that, that soundtrack in your head is playing that, that message about you're unwanted, you're a reject, you're excluded, you don't belong, people will never like you, you're, you're an outcast, you're, you're different Anytime that tape starts playing, you're afraid of rejection and you're becoming a puppet to somebody. You're jumping to gain their approval. Anytime that starts happening, you're going you're gonna to remember, no, no, I am not. I am wanted by the most important, the most kind, the most loving, the most intelligent, the most knowledgeable about me person in the universe. And I'm going to live reminding myself that I am wanted, and I am going to look into the faces of God's people, and they will also show me that I belong, that I am wanted. Folks, sometimes we say things about, oh, man, something as simple as just a greeting to somebody on Sunday morning. Don't dart out the door and say hello to somebody you never met. We, we say things like this, and sometimes you think, ah, oh, it's just noise, just white noise. They're just saying that stuff. You can change somebody's life sometimes. Just by saying, hey, man, what's your name? How long have you been coming to FCF? My name's Randy. What's yours? They've got to see what Gloria saw, the love of God shining through the faces of you. You want to feel wanted really quick? Start helping somebody else feel wanted. I guarantee you that'll fast track the healing of your own broken heart. So, maybe for the first time, some of you really are going to live in the light of the fact that you're wanted by God. And maybe some of you, for the first time, are going to do what Jesus urged Matthew to do. Come follow him. You're going to put your trust in him. You're going to follow him fully, freely, and you're going to follow him forever. And you're going to... 
You're going to be a new kind of a person because of that. Whatever decision the Spirit of God is moving on your heart, please make it because sometimes these pivotal moments like this can determine the course of the rest of your life. Let's, let's pray. Father, you, you see what's going on in our hearts. You know what's been going on in our life. You know what we've lived with. May your Spirit do what is necessary to help us live in light of the truth that we are wanted by you, the living God, and to live this way and to remind ourselves we're wanted for the rest of our lives. Every time those negative, destructive, agonizing, torturous thoughts come into our minds, may your Spirit give us the strength to refuse them and detach from them forevermore. We ask it in Christ's name.